Hebrews chapter 13, we're continuing what has become a two-year study through the book of Hebrews, and we're wrapping it up at the end of the book, chapter 13, and this morning we've come to verse 17. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, there's a verse that doesn't sit well with most people. We don't like the word obey. We don't like that word submit. We don't even like those words in relation to God. We prefer that he make suggestions that we concur with rather than commands that we obey. We prefer that he ask us to do things rather than tell us to do things. I think we all prefer the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. That kind of suggests we both got a steering wheel. I've still got some control. And of course, here the words obey and submit are even harder to swallow because they are used in relation to human leaders. We don't like to obey people. That goes against our human nature. That goes against our culture. That goes against our background. John Stott in his book Between Two Worlds says, Seldom if ever in its long history has the world witnessed such a self-conscious revolt against authority. Is that true of our day? Is that true of you? When I say the word authority, obey, submit, do you welcome those as pleasant words? Or do you kind of bristle up inside and get defensive? And what is it that contributes to that attitude? You know, we live in a country that was founded on a rebellion against authority. You realize that? I heard recently that uh, all our Navy ships are now flying the first Navy Jack flag. That was the flag that was on our first Navy ship in the Revolutionary War. It has a picture of a rattlesnake with the motto, don't tread on me. And that motto really captures our defiant national spirit. More than any other country, we exalt individual rights. We have a bill of rights. And even when you get arrested in our country, the officer has to read you your rights. This will date me, but when I was younger, Half my friends had a poster on the wall of James Dean. You don't know who James Dean is. He was the epitome of rebellion. He starred in the movie Rebel Without a Cause. And that was the attitude that we idolized. The concept of submission to authority seems wimpy to us. And on top of that, our culture is influenced by postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is just a new word, but there's nothing new really about it. 
Postmodernism simply holds that there is no absolute truth. So each person is free to make up their own truth or interpret their own truth any way they want to. And so postmodern thinking says your truth is fine for you, but I've got my own truth. And don't try to get me to submit to your truth. You see, because truth is not absolute, therefore truth is not authoritative. So there is no absolute. It's fine for you to believe whatever you want to believe, but you've got to let me believe whatever I want to believe. I am the authority of my life. I just kind of use truth for my ends. And then you add to your country and your culture, your background. Many of you probably come from churches that have congregational rule. Congregational rule means everybody has a vote. And that can become a very political landscape. If you don't like the leader, you just campaign against him and vote him out. But you know, against all of those influences, we come to Hebrews 13:17. It says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them." Now, verses 17 to 19 are directed at church members, but they also implicitly contain some duties for church leaders as well. So this morning, I'm going to focus on your responsibility to your leaders. And then next week, we're going to come back to this passage and focus on your leaders responsibilities to you. This passage spells out two duties that you have to your church leaders. They're real easy to pick out. It's the first word in verse 17 and the first word in verse 18. Those two duties are obey and pray. First of all, you're to obey in verse 17. Now, the Greek word obey and the Greek word submit means to obey and submit. You were hoping I had a little different variation there. This is not real complicated. This is not rocket science. You are to obey and submit. And these two words are very similar with the distinction being that to obey is talking about adhering to commands and to submit involves your attitude. You see, you can obey your parents by taking out the trash, but be seething inside with anger. You're obeying, but you're not submitting. Submission involves a willing surrender that's reflected in your attitude. And God here is calling for both of those things. Obedience and submission. Now, God has established various levels of authority under His ultimate authority. God establishes the authority of civil governments. He put that authority in place to protect and bless law-abiding citizens from those who would harm them, from those who would take advantage of them. When the government does its job, criminals are punished, foreign invaders are kept away, and people dwell in peace. On the other hand, when government leaders are corrupt, corrupt and negligent, the citizens suffer. In the family, God appointed husbands to have authority under Christ in order to protect and bless their wives and their children. The husband is to provide for his family. He's to protect his family from physical and spiritual danger. He is to bless his family by leading them in the ways of God. And of course, the flip side of that is 
than an ungodly husband who uses authority for his own selfish ends and abuses the authority that God has entrusted to him causes his family to suffer. And then in the church, God has appointed elders or pastors to oversee the flock. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul says this to the elders of the church in Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. These are the leaders he's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. The leaders of the local church. And he says that you are to obey and submit to their leadership, to their authority. Now, before we jump into this, I want you to notice a couple important things in the opening words of verse 17. First of all, leaders is plural. It doesn't say obey your leader. Obey your leaders. And the New Testament is clear that there is to be a plurality of elders over each local church. Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 says they appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. Acts 20:17, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Titus 1:5 says, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so leadership is plural. And that's a great safeguard against the abuse of authority to have a plurality of leadership. But not only are leaders plural, I want you to also notice that leaders are personal. He says, obey your leaders. Now, let me ask you a question. Who are your leaders? Who do you obey and submit yourself to? Well, if you're a member of Cape Bible Chapel, then you obey and submit yourself to the elders of Cape Bible Chapel. But if you're not a member of this church or you're not a member of any church, you have to say, I don't know. I guess I don't have any leaders. You see, this passage presents one of the strongest arguments for membership in the local church. If you have refused to join a local church and entrust yourself to the care and authority of the leaders of that church, then you have no leaders. And for you, obedience to Hebrews 13, 17 is impossible. And on the other side of that, as a leader, verse 17 tells me that I will one day give an account for the souls of those over whom I am watching. And I want to know who are the souls that I'm going to one day stand before God and give an account for. I want to know who the sheep are that I'm shepherding. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the good shepherd knows his sheep. And so from a leadership standpoint, 
I am all about membership in the local church because we want to know who it is that we're responsible for to shepherd and who it is that we will stand before God one day and give an account for. Now, practically speaking, how does this work? How do you obey and submit to your leaders? Well, let me suggest to you that the first step in that process is joining the local church. Because when you join the local church, you are saying, you are my leaders. This is my church. I am putting myself under the authority of this local church. Now you say, well, I, I don't think that's biblical. I hear people all the time say, well, local membership is not biblical. Well, I would give you this, that it certainly wasn't stressed much in the first century. And that's because there were not 30 churches or 50 churches in one city. There was just one church in each city. And so they didn't really need this emphasis that we need today. If you got saved in Lystra, you became part of the church in Lystra. If you got saved in Iconium, you became part of the church in Iconium. But the evidence is there that they knew who was a member of the church and who was not. And just to show you this briefly, turn in your Bible back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. This is the day the church was born. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Notice the last part of the verse. It says, And the Lord was adding to their number... Day by day, those who were being saved. When someone got saved, they got added to the number of the church. Now, turn over a few pages to chapter 5 and verse 14. It says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So there's a number in the church and it keeps getting added to. As time goes by, you say, well, Dan, he's talking here about the universal church. Well, at this point in time, the universal church was local because there was only one church, the church in Jerusalem. But let me show you something else. Turn over a few more pages to Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. Acts 16, 5. So the churches, plural, were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now, how did churches have numbers? They had numbers because they knew who was in the church and how many were in the church. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.9, we're told that in the church of Ephesus, they had a list of widows that they supported. Now, my, my argument would be, how do you make a sub-list without having a master list? We're going to make a list of the widows that we're going to support. Can you think of any widows? You say, I would argue that they had a list of the people and they went through the list and they said, these are the widows that qualify for us to support them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, along with some other passages, indicate that when a believer moved to another city, his church wrote a letter of commendation to the new church. So he would show up and hand them a letter showing that he was a member in good standing at the church he was coming from. 
Now, my argument would be, why would you need a letter if the church was just an open-ended group that nobody knew who was in and who was out? Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 22. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Now, this is a church at Jerusalem. How do you know you got the whole church? Well, you got to know who's in the church. The whole church was here in, in Acts chapter 15. But notice it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, what, you want, what I want you to notice is the whole church at Jerusalem made a decision and Paul and Barnabas were not included in the church at Jerusalem. Why not? Because Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were teachers in the church at Antioch. So even though they're in Jerusalem at this point in time, they're not part of the whole church in Jerusalem because their identification with it is with the church in Antioch. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave us the steps for discipline in the church. And the final step in that discipline process when all else fails is to put them out of the church. How do you put someone out of the church if they were never in the church? So come back to Hebrews chapter 13. I've been on my soapbox. Come back to Hebrews chapter 13. You begin to obey Hebrews 13, 17 by joining a local church and putting yourself under the authority of their leadership. And then... You follow the directives of the leaders. I joined Health Point. I know what you're thinking. What'd you do that for? You're in great shape. I appreciate you saying that. You know, the day I joined, the day I became a member, they gave me a pamphlet with a list of rules and regulations. I'm still working on the one about spitting on the floor. But with membership comes responsibility. So I've joined, I'm a member there, they're laying down the rules, and I'm not saying, you're not going to tell me what to do. I become a member. I expect they have some rules. I expect that they're going to lead me and guide me through that process because, honestly speaking, I'm the guy who's out of shape and I want them to get me in shape. If we as a church discipline someone and have to put them out of the church, and you say, well, I don't think that was fair. I'm going to become best friends with that guy and hang out with him all the time. You are disobeying the leadership of the local church. The elders make a decision and you choose to criticize it and undermine it. That's not submission. It's real simple. Obey and submit to the leaders. Now, this doesn't mean you follow blindly. If your leader is James Jones, don't drink the Kool-Aid. 
And even in a church that is seeking to follow the Bible, there is room for debate. There is room for interaction. Our example is Acts chapter 15. They got together and they debated about an issue and then the leaders made a decision on that issue. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 gives you the way to confront a leader who is abusive or a leader who is sinful. It lays down the way to do that. I welcome you to be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11 who listened to Paul preach and then it says they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I desire that you do that. When I, when I preach, go back and look at the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and see if these things are so. I welcome you to catch me and interact about my message because I am not infallible. And no leader is. You say, well, then why should we obey them? Well, he gives us three reasons here. And I've listed them in your bulletin. Reason number one is because they watch over your souls. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You know, it'd be a lot easier to watch over your bodies. Just see if you show up here. Just take attendance. You say, yeah, he was here, she was here. Whole nother level to watch over your souls. And to do that, elders have to be willing to do whatever it takes. Paul expresses that shepherding heart in 2 Corinthians 12:15 when he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He expresses it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2:7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. You know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. That's the role of an elder. Spiritual mother and spiritual father watching over your soul. And on top of that, they will one day give an account for your soul. You talk about great responsibility and you talk about great motivation. I don't know about you, but I don't have that many people watching over my soul. And you're probably not even watching over your own soul as carefully as you should. And so if you have leaders who are watching over your soul, and I can tell you that you do if you're in this church. If you have leaders who have your eternal well-being at heart, you should readily obey and submit to that kind of leadership. Second reason. You're to obey your leaders because if you don't, you're hurting yourself. Look at the rest of verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Spiritual children, just like natural children, can be the source of great joy. They can also be the source of great grief. In fact, that word grief literally means groaning. And every church leader has had occasion for both joy and groaning over people in the flock. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3.9, 
For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? John wrote in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. No greater joy than that. But again, there's no greater grief than seeing your children walk away from the truth. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2.4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. In 2 Corinthians 11.29, he lists all the physical struggles and pains he had gone through. And then he says, the real struggle is my concern for the churches. And he says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? In Philippians 3.18, he says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why do your leaders weep so much and rejoice so much? The simple answer is because they care so much about you. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that you ought to want to make them rejoice because if they're leading you with joy, that means you're blessed. And if they're leading you with groaning and weeping, it's unprofitable for you. And so you are to be obeying your leaders because if you don't, you're hurting yourself. And then the third reason, because they're guiding you with the Word of God. And for this point, I want you to slide down to verse 22. Verse 22 says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I say, well, Dan, I mean, a 13-chapter letter is hardly brief. Well, this guy calls it brief. Well, that's because this is not really a letter. This phrase, word of exhortation, is used in Acts 13.15, very same phrase, to describe a sermon. So Hebrews is not really a letter, and that's why when we saw the opening of it, it doesn't open like a normal letter in the New Testament. It's a sermon in written form. And I'm told, I didn't try this, but I'm told that you can read the book of Hebrews aloud in 48 minutes. Which tells me that biblically, A 48-minute sermon is brief. And three times, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 9, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 32, three times the writer indicates that he could say more, but he restrains himself. And I can certainly relate to that. But you know, that, that word, bear with, in verse 22, is translated in 2 Timothy 4.3 as endure. You see, sermons are to be endured. And I hear you saying, Amen. I've endured. I've endured and I've endured. One lady told her pastor his sermon reminded her of the peace of God and the mercy of God. Before he could say thank you, she continued, like the peace of God, it passed all understanding. 
And like the mercy of God, it was everlasting. Well, even when the sermon is understandable and efficient, it still has to be endured. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience. And then he adds this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's our word, endure. The time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. You know what that tells me? When you endure sound doctrine, it's not always going to be easy on your ears. In fact, rather than tickling your ears, sound truth often makes your ears hurt. Why? Because it reproves and it rebukes and it changes you. And that can be painful on the front end as God changes you with His Word because it's that two-edged sword that cuts you open, lays you bare. But God changes you into what you want to be. So on the front end, you have to endure the truth because that truth is cutting through to your heart and changing your life. And that's what godly spiritual leaders will do for you. And so you are to obey and submit to them. Michael Fabarez, in his book, Preaching That Changes Lives, did some research and found that most people do not prepare in any significant way for church. He said, in an average church, fewer than half of the worshipers pray for their encounter with the sermon. Less than a third pray for their pastor or his preparation. And even when the passage is clearly announced the previous week, only one in five people will take the time to read it before they come to church. If you want to bear with the word of exhortation that I bring each week, I would encourage you to pray for your own heart to be receptive to God's truth. To pray for me as I prepare the message and preach it. And to spend some time during the week going over the passage itself and meditating on how it applies to your life. You see, the effectiveness of my preaching doesn't just depend on how well I preach. It depends on how well you listen. Even Jesus, the greatest preacher ever, exhorted His audience in Luke 8.18 to take care how you listen. So the first duty is to obey. The second duty is to pray. In verses 18 and 19. Notice verse 18. Pray for us. I was struck as I thumbed through the New Testament at how often the Apostle Paul asked for prayer. Here's just a sampling. Romans 15.30 Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Ephesians 6.19 Pray on my behalf. Colossians 4.3 Pray at the same time for us as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.25 Brethren, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us. Now, why did Paul ask for so much prayer? 
Well, I think he tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.16 where he asks the question, who is adequate for these things? You see, when you understand that you're not adequate for the things that God has called you to do, then you find yourself praying and asking other people to pray for you. Who is adequate for these things? I'm certainly not. I always have the feeling that I'm in over my head. And that drives me to prayer and to ask for prayer. Prayer or lack of prayer is a direct reflection of my dependence upon God. When I realize I'm not adequate, I'm praying. When I think I can handle things myself, I'm not praying. The Apostle Paul, who would be more adequate than anybody I am, was constantly asking for prayer. Now, what do your leaders need prayer for? Three things. First of all, for their conscience. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Your conscience is kind of like the nerve endings in your fingers. When you start to touch something hot, the nerves in your finger tell you to get away and you pull back. But you can have a dead nerve in your hand or in your finger. And when that happens, people often find themselves burning their finger and they never even know it. Well, your conscience is like your inner moral nerve. When you start to do something wrong, your conscience causes you to step back from that. It reacts to that like a nerve reacts in your physical body. But just as a physical nerve can stop working, your conscience can stop working. So he says, we're sure that our conscience is good, but pray for us because the Bible warns that your conscience can become defiled. Your conscience can be seared. That's a word that means it gets burnt and calloused so it no longer works effectively anymore. And so he's saying, I want you to pray for us that our consciences would be maintained, that they would always be good. And then secondly, you're to pray for your leaders Conduct in verse 18. The end of the verse says, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. You know, Satan loves to get Christian leaders to fall. Ted Haggard's the most recent big name preacher that dishonored the name of Christ by his conduct. And when that happens, Unbelieving people say, I told you so. I told you so. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. I just found out this week that a very close friend of mine in ministry admitted to having sexual relations with a 16-year-old girl and is facing certain prison time. He has destroyed his life. He has destroyed the life of this young girl. He's a husband with three little children. He has destroyed his family. Because he wasn't careful about his conduct. But I want you to notice something. 
the prayer request here in verse 18 is not pray that we won't do the worst thing imaginable. The prayer request is pray that we will conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Pray that we'll be faithful in the little things. Pray that we will honor God in everything that we do. That's the prayer request. And then the third area you're to pray for your leaders in is for their circumstances. Verse 19. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, we don't know what the situation was that kept him from visiting them, but it was obviously beyond his control. And so he's asking them to pray for God to change the circumstances. People are always asking me if I really think prayer changes things. Well, the writer of Hebrews does because he says, if you pray, I will be restored to you sooner. Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for the elders? Would you pray for me? Pray that I would maintain a good conscience with acute sensitivity to sin in my life. Pray that I would conduct myself in a way that would honor God in all things. Pray that my circumstances would allow me to serve God and you most effectively. Would you do that? On one of his visits to America, Charles Spurgeon was asked this question by a minister. He said, in our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? In other words, what's the secret to your success in ministry? And after a moment's pause, Spurgeon replied, my people pray for me. What's the secret to your effectiveness in ministry? My people pray for me. So your duties are simple. Obey your leaders because we have been given authority. And pray for your leaders because we are human and we are not adequate for the task God has given us. Obey and pray. Let's do that in closing.